this morning as we gather together for Easter, I want to ask the question, rhetorically speaking, in your mind, what does God think about you right now? In this moment, what would God's disposition be towards you? Do you envision him being stern or frustrated with the decisions that you have made in your life? You know, maybe for a long time I imagined him in heaven, kind of with his arms crossed, his foot's tapping, a little impatience up there. You know, is he, is he watching your life play out and just like, there's just a sigh and like a face palm. Like, what are you doing? Maybe you see God as your heavenly father and you know, right, you, you know up here that he loves you unconditionally or loves you deeply. But unfortunately, we have a tendency to project our relationship with our parents onto God. And as much as our parents said that they loved us unconditionally, maybe not all have said that, but even the best ones have said that they love their kids unconditionally, but very often the affection that is shared is conditional. It's based upon our behavior. I remember one of my friends in college who, um, who, who said that when he sinned, when he did something that God knew he, that, that he knew he shouldn't do and that God wouldn't like, he had trouble asking for forgiveness. Why? Because when he was growing up and he did something wrong and he would go to his father and apologize, his dad's response was, prove it. Right? It, it reminds me of that scene in, in that classic movie, Saving Private Ryan, if you've seen that. Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, he's dying from his wounds. They've gone out of their way to rescue this, this Private Ryan, and he says to him, he says to Matt Damon, earn this, earn this. And that's so often how we live our life, that God has given us a gift, but in order to gain God's approval, we have to do something to show that we're sorry. We have to do something to earn the gift. Now, just as a tangent, if, if, it's a, if it's something that you have to earn, then it ceases being a gift. My wife has shared from up here, in fact, when she preached, gosh, that was four years ago maybe now, I don't know, that there have been seasons in her life where she felt that God was like a cosmic cup, right, just waiting there for her to screw up. You know, like that annoying speed trap. If, if, if you travel on the turnpike, right, coming down that hill near Breezewood, there's, all, there's always a police officer sitting there. They're just waiting, right? Waiting for the right moment for you to do something wrong to bring down the hammer. Is that what God is like for you? Now, this morning as we celebrate Easter, Easter as we celebrate this Resurrection Sunday, if we hold to any of those perspectives that I shared a moment ago, I, I want to encourage us to throw them out and develop it and, and grab a hold of a more gospel-centered picture of God's grace and salvation, God's love for us. I want us to peel back the layers and see that depth of his love for us. The Bible tells us that it was God's desire for us to receive salvation. Not that he begrudgingly offered it, but that he delighted to provide a way for us to go back to him. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 12 too. He or she says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
That passage tells us that it was Christ's love for us that compelled him to suffer. Jesus ran head first into suffering because he joyfully saw what the outcome of that would, would be on the other side, that our relationship with him would be restored. And so this morning, I want us to look at three dimensions of God's love for us. And I want them to parallel his life, his death, and his resurrection. Right? In life, in, in life, God moved, God's love moved toward us. In his death, he suffers with us and for us. And through his resurrection, we see that his love cannot be stopped. And so on this holiest of days in the church calendar, may we hold fast to the joy that is ours in Jesus Christ. Right? I want us to celebrate that rich and robust love that God has for each one of us. There are many of us who need to get rid of, you know, that, that stinking thinking that puts God's fondness for us, reliant on whether or not we measure up to some arbitrary standard that we've cast for ourselves. God loves us perfectly in Jesus Christ. And he's shown as much when he, when he walked on the earth. So first, God's love moved towards us. God's love is not distant he doesn't, he doesn't like stiff arm us. He doesn't keep us at arm's length, say, you just stay over there and I'm, gonna, you know, I'm like going to lob blessings over to you. And we see this most clearly in Jesus Christ who took on human flesh. And as Eugene Peterson said in his translation that the, or trans, uh, paraphrase the message, he said that he moved into the neighborhood. Right? We were broken, we were sinful apart from God, but God didn't leave us to our fate, but drew near to us in order to provide an avenue to save us. Now, if, if I had to put a label on the personality of Jesus Christ based upon the picture that we see of him in the Gospels, it would be the word compassionate. Jesus cared for people. He saw their dignity. He saw their worth. He loved those whom no one else would love. He spent time, his time with the ones that society had already given up on. In Mark 5, we see an incredible picture of Christ's compassion. Right? Jesus had just returned to the Jewish lands uh, after a little excursion abroad, and he's met on the dock by one of the religious leaders of the day, Jairus. Jairus' daughter is sick and dying, and he needs Jesus' help. And so Jesus obliges. He begins following this, this person of influence, this city influencer. But en route to the house, a woman whose uterus had been bleeding for 12 years just snuck up straight behind him just to touch his garment, thinking that if she just touches him, right, because word had gone out ahead of, ahead of her, this guy worked miracles. If she could just touch his garment, just the, the little piece of fabric at, fabric at the edge of his cloak, that she would magically be healed. She touches his, his, the fringe of his cloak. She's healed. And Jesus stops. He tarries. He pauses his journey to, to draw out what just happened, right? He, he redirects his, his attention from this person of influence, and he focuses on this woman, this woman who had been ritually unclean for 12 years, who's been at the outskirts of society, who has been ridiculed, who has been abused, who's experienced probably no human contact for what seems like ages. Jesus gives his presence, his compassionate presence to the overlooked. I mean, I, I was trying to think about what this would be like for me. 
Right? If, I, if I was to try to live like Jesus, and I fail all the time. But imagine that, that we were able to, one of us, you or I, were able to have an appointment with Governor Tom Wolf, And we're walking to his house. And while you're walking to his house, you catch the whiff of someone who hasn't showered for days, if not weeks. Turn around and the guy tells you that he's starving. He asks for some food. I know what I'd probably do. I'd look at my watch, realize, well, Governor Wolf's expecting me in the next five minutes. And so, you know, sorry, I don't have time for you. I've got somewhere to be, somewhere, somewhere important to be, no less. But I fully believe that Jesus would take that guy aside to the nearest Chick-fil-A, because you know that's got to be Jesus' go-to restaurant, right? And he'd buy the guy a meal even if it means he experiences the social faux pas of being late to an appointment with someone who is important. Because to, to Jesus, all of us are important. There's no favoritism with him. We see something similar happen when Jesus heals a leper. Leprosy was a, a skin disease that was highly contagious and it would make someone a social pariah. Lepers would walk down the street, they'd cover their mouth, they'd have to shout that they were unclean. Let everybody know. And so in that society, if you touched someone or something that was unclean, that impurity would pass from them to you, tainting you as well. And so as you can imagine, if someone was walking down the street saying that they were unclean, right, you, you would do your best to cross over to the opposite side of the street, giving as wide a berth as possible. But in Matthew chapter 8, a leper approaches Jesus, similar to this woman, saying, this, this is my last hope. And listen to what he says. He says, Lord if you will, you can make me clean. He says, Jesus, I know you have the power to heal me. But what I don't know is if you're willing to take a risk on dirty old me. But Jesus did there what he does best. He closed the gap, right? Stretching out his hand, touching him, saying, I am so willing to be healed. Now notice, Jesus doesn't become unclean as a result of touching this guy, but actually it works in reverse, right? The holiness that is in Jesus pushes back against the filth of darkness and brings healing and purity to this guy's life. Jesus stretches out his hand to touch the untouchables. Jesus is willing to bring healing to our lives, regardless of where we might find ourselves this morning. He's displayed in his life that he is willing because the love of Jesus Christ moved towards us. But this morning, we're not just talking about his life. We're discussing Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And to get there, we need to discuss his death. On Good Friday, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung dying on a cross for us. Now, if you have been to church for any uh, amount of time, you've probably you know, encountered the formula that worked our salvation, right? Just to recap, we are sinners, we have broken God's commandments. We, we are deserving to die in God's economy, in desperate need of help. Right? Enter Jesus, God in the flesh, who lived the perfect life that we were unable to and suffered and died on the cross in our stead. And so what happened is God provided that great exchange where Christ died to fulfill the penalty for our sins and we get credit for the perfect life of Jesus in substitute. Now, every word that I said is true. But sometimes I find myself thinking about it in a way that is just, it's like a mental exercise. 
that is so detached. Like It's like knowing the facts of what happened, but there is a well of emotion in Jesus that culminated on the cross. Right? Jesus died for us, but did he do it begrudgingly? Did he throw up his arms in frustration like, Ugh, like I guess if I want to get it done right, I've got to do it myself? Right? Like every exasperated parent has said at some point in time in their life. Right? Did Jesus look on that cross hanging on that cross, look condescendingly at humanity like Uncle Frank and Home Alone, right? Like, look what you did, you little jerk, right? It's like, is that, is that the attitude of Jesus? And it sounds mean, but I think there are many of us who say that we know that God loves us, but we experience it in kind of this emotionally detached way. Like God says he loves us, but he's more annoyed with us than anything because we just can't seem to get right this thing called life. We project anger, we project frustration upon God, and it can cloud our understanding of his love. But the death of Jesus reveals that he was willing to suffer for us and to suffer with us. I've been reading a book that Sarah got me for Christmas called Gentle and Lowly. The subtitle is is Focusing on the Heart of Jesus for Us, Sinners and Sufferers. And it traces some of the rich theology of the Puritans. One of the quotes in the book that just really struck me, uh, it's written by Benjamin Grosvenor. I don't know if I said that right. Benjamin Grosvenor. It's in the 1800s, he wrote. And so pretending to be Jesus, he says this. If you meet that poor wretch that thrust the spear into my side, tell him that there's another way, a better way of coming at my heart. If he will repent and look upon whom he has pierced and mourn, I will cherish him in that very bosom he has wounded. He shall find the blood shed, the blood he shed, an ample atonement for the sin of shedding it. And tell him from me, he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood than when he drew it forth. And I find this quote incredible. And I find it in line with the picture that we see of Jesus in the Gospels, that while he is hanging on the cross, the author imagines Jesus expressing forgiveness to the soldier that pierced his side with the spear. Right? Even this soldier who wounded and spilled the blood of Jesus, that very plush, precious blood was more than an adequate compensation for the act of shedding it. Jesus is offering forgiveness to that soldier while he is in the midst of stabbing him with the very blood that is pouring from his wound. If an offer of forgiveness can go to the ones responsible for killing Jesus, then surely we're not too far gone either. If Jesus longs to see those who mocked him, beat him, and killed him forgiven and restored in relationship with God, then that says something truly wonderful about his heart towards us. The cross of Jesus is where the the, the justice of God and his mercy aligns. The place where wickedness needed to be dealt with, right? We learn from a young age that there are consequences. There are ramifications to our actions. If we don't eat our dinner, we don't get dessert. If we smack our sister, we need to sit in time out or, you know, maybe some of you guys got whooped yourselves. Our decisions in life have consequences that come with them, right? We all have not appropriately loved God nor loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've done things that have left hurt and left destruction in our wake 
And God takes those things seriously. Never does God just sweep them under the rug. But he takes them seriously because God lovingly and graciously, not angrily, took the punishment, took the consequences of those sins upon himself. He suffered so that we wouldn't have to. And it wasn't obligation that drove him there, but his affection, his love for us. He didn't have to do it. He didn't do it out of obligation. But the story doesn't end there. I love the way that Bob, Bob Goff puts it. He says, uh, on Good Friday, he says, darkness fell, his friends scattered, hope seemed lost, but heaven just started counting to three. And on that cross, when evil attempted to snuff out the light of the world, when Jesus breathed his last, darkness thought that it had won thought that it had killed God. I love the picture in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the, the, the white witch finally gets Aslan. She slays him on the table and thinks, this is it. The world is mine. I've won. But unbeknownst to the enemy, it was through that act that God would put the nail in the coffin, not just evil, but of death itself. Because as the Gospels testify, early on that Sunday morning, Jesus, once again, he drew breath. His brain synapses started firing. He opened his eyes. He flexed his hand. He stood up. The enormous stone, as I read this morning, that was blocking the cave rolled away, and he walked right out of that cave. That assailant that has been claiming human lives since our first parents in Adam and Eve, death, that insatiable mistress that we can't run from no matter how hard we try, had its grip upon humanity loosened. That seemingly final journey of death was no longer an insurmountable hurdle for us. Right? Jesus didn't just die on the cross to forgive us, but he showcased his power by rising from the dead. We see that through the empty tomb that the love of God cannot be stopped. In the words of Paul, when he writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, he says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to stop us, will be able to separate, excuse me, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. There is nothing that can stand in the way of God's love for us. Jesus rose from the dead, and in so doing, he released us from the bondage of death. That prophet Isaiah, who wrote 700 years before any of these events, wrote in Isaiah 25, 8, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. He's going to do it. And as the apostle Paul wrote following these events in 1 Corinthians, if you follow our Bible reading plan, You'll read this this, this this spring. He said, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Not even death can separate us from the love of God. When Christ rose from the dead, he gave us hope. Hope that death wouldn't be the last word. Hope that just as he came back to life, so too would we live again. The New Testament describes Christ's resurrection as the first fruits of those who has fallen. That first apple plucked from the tree in harvest season. 
because Jesus lives, I know that one day I too will live forever with him. God has made a way back to himself, not just where the slate of our sin is wiped clean, but also a place where we can live with him forever without sickness, without sadness and death. So as Christians, we are an Easter people. We live in light of the resurrection which shows us who is in charge, who is the boss of the world. We are a people of hope, knowing, that, of knowing God's rich love and that nothing can stand in the way of it. But, alas, right, we live in this time between the times. We are victorious in Christ, knowing that he has established his kingdom here for us. But as we also continue to linger in this place, we come face to face with brokenness and evil. What does it look like for us to follow Jesus in this time between the times? How do we experience God's love in a world where there is, there's clearly pain and hostility? How do we follow him as a resurrection people in spite of what we see around us? In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is described as our great high priest. Right? A priest was an inter intermediary between God and humanity was an advocate to God for humanity. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Right? Let us hold fast to this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we might receive judgment. No, that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Right? Jesus is not detached from us. He drew near to us. And even in his resurrected state, Jesus is our high priest who understands our weakness. He knows what we go through. Right? Jesus Christ has experienced the fullness of human emotions and pain. He knows what it is to go hungry. He knows what it is to have friends abandon him, to experience betrayal. He knows what it is to be mocked and tortured. He knows what it is to be dismissed, to be ignored. He knows anxiety. He's experienced loss. Jesus has felt the full spectrum of human emotion, but yet was without sin. When we suffer... Jesus knows how we feel because he's felt it before. Right? The author of Hebrews encourages us in light of all of that, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace where we receive mercy, where we receive help in our time of need. Right? Jesus in his love invites us to an upside down kingdom. Right? The way up is down. His kingdom isn't one that you or I can ascend through our own effort. To get there, we have to recognize our helplessness. Right? Jesus, apart from you, I just can't do it. And so, friends, this morning I want to ask you, where is your hope? What are you trying to attain? Where are you trying to get? Where do you put your trust? Is it in yourself? Are you striving to control the outcomes of your life by your own power? 
Are you forming your sense of identity and purpose out of your work? Do you see the broken systems of our world and throw yourself at the mercy of politics, clamoring for it to save you? Do you trust in money? You just had a little more, then you'll be happy or healthy or satisfied with life. Where is your hope? Is it in your friends? Is it in your spouse, your parents, your children? All of those things are good things in moderation, but none of them make good saviors. Eventually, they're all going to let you down. Right? A friend is gonna, will betray you, hurt your feelings, on purpose or not. Your company will downsize, and you'll lose your job if that's your identity. A recession might come and eliminate your retirement nest egg. Instead, put your hope in God. Because we've seen this morning that God deeply loves you. He has displayed his love for you by moving towards you. He desires to reach out just as he did to the leper, just as he allowed that, that hidden woman to do. He desires to reach out and touch the parts of our lives that we have kept locked away, things that we've kept hidden. Let Jesus bring his healing love into those dark recesses of the soul, knowing just like he did with the leper, that as his holiness emanates from himself, it cleanses those things that he touches. He showed that he loves us through his suffering. He didn't just perform a transaction. This wasn't just like a business transaction to save us. But it was out of love. He did it without any hint of resentment, but for the joy set before him. He endured the cross and scorned its shame. And we saw that God's love cannot be stopped. Not even the finality, the seemingly finality of death can separate us from God's love. And so I invite you this Easter morning to surrender to the love of God. Instead of putting your trust in created things or things that you can control, trust instead the love of Christ. Because when you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord in faith, God's entire disposition for you, because that's where we started, right? What is God's disposition towards you? When we believe in Jesus, God's entire disposition towards you is one of delight. Trust his love for you. And know that out of that love, he will guide you. He will provide for you. Trust that he sees you, even if you feel invisible. Because... Right? Christ gives visibility to the hidden. He gives meaning. He gives purpose to the ones that society rejects. As you suffer, because suffering is going to come to our lives, know that you don't suffer alone. For we have a great high priest who has experienced precisely what you are going through. You are seen, you are heard, and you are loved by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Please join me in prayer. Lord, as we gather together in this place, focusing on you and your word and what you would teach us, may that first item on our lips recognize your love for us. Recognize that when we are found in Jesus, there is no if, ands, or buts. There is no conditional if, else clause. Lord, may we be able to rest under your delight over us. Knowing that your, your character throughout Scripture 
It's one of grace. We, we like to put rules on it. We like to talk about judgment because we like to control our destiny. If I just follow this checklist, then you'll love me, then I'll be saved. But God, we can't do it on our own. Lord, showcase to us precisely what sort of God you are in our lives. Give us the things we need, our daily bread, tomorrow's bread today, as some translators would say. Lord, ultimately, may we rest on you and know how deeply you love us. In Jesus' name we pray.